All right, well, praise God. This is pretty awesome, huh? Sweet to be together. It's good for God's people to be together. Amen. And so I uh, appreciate your, your patience with us as we are, <laughs> it seems, weekly changing directions with where we're meeting and how we're meeting and when we're meeting. And so Lord willing, we'll be able to stay kind of consistent with this for the next however long. Um, but if something should happen and for whatever reason we have to switch it up again, I hope not, but just bear with us. So just know we love you guys and doing our best to, uh, to gather and be a blessing. So... All right, so one announcement before we get started today uh, is Wednesday night, midweek study. We're also going to do the same thing. We're going to meet out here. We will also stream it um, at the same time at 6.30 in the evening. Sorry, last week I said 7.30. That was my, my mistake. Uh, but we're going to be kicking off a new series. Um, I'm going to be coming back to teaching on Wednesday nights. Pastor Bill and Pastor Dan really uh, blessed me by stepping into that for a time. Uh, when I became the senior pastor, I just found that um, being able to hand that off to, to those brothers was a, a great blessing. But I'm ready to step back into it. And we're going to be starting off in 1 Samuel this coming Wednesday. And so I'm really excited so excited. I love the books of First and Second Samuel, and I know I'm going to be blessed. I trust that you will be blessed, so please uh, come out and be with us on Wednesday nights so that God's people can gather during the midweek. And as I said, we will be streaming as well, so just know that. All right, let me offer up a word of prayer, and we'll get into our study. God, we love you, and we, we praise your holy name. How sweet it is when the saints are able to gather together and to sing to you and to study your word and to be challenged, to be taught. And I pray that that would be the case for us all today, God. Would you please strengthen us by your spirit, teach us in your word, and encourage us and strengthen, challenge your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today we're talking about uh, the, the Calvary Napa vital sign called Growing People Change. Growing People Change. We're almost done with our series. We have one more next week. And so today, Growing People Change. Let me read this. We come to God as we are, but from that moment on, He changes our hearts. As our hearts change, so do our character, conduct, and desires. God is committed to forming us into the likeness of His Son, Jesus. And this growing in Christ-likeness is the ongoing journey of the Christian life. It is the aim of every believer, young and old, to continually die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the journey of the Christian life. And so point one, let me say this, it's God's intention for the Christian to change. That's God's intention for us, is that we would change. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so God's plan from eternity past was for us to be like Christ. Did you know that? That's been God's plan for a long time. It's kind of a big deal to God, and it's a big deal to us. I remember the first time that true change became apparent in my life as a young believer. You know, I went to a, uh, a ministry called U-Turn for Christ, for, for a drug addiction, and I came there because I wanted to change my life. <clears throat> but what I didn't realize is that God was going to change me from the inside out. And I remember one of the rules there was you're not allowed to smoke. 
And so I, I gave my life to the Lord right away, like day number two. And I thought, well, I should probably start with some simple things. I'll quit cussing, you know, clean it up a little bit. And I thought, as soon as I get a cigarette, I'm going to smoke. And I did. And uh, I don't know, maybe about two weeks into the program, I had gotten my hands on another cigarette. And all of a sudden, this thought crossed my mind. I came here to change. And this is that same old behavior. You know, I was totally a, a rule breaker, a liar, a thief. And uh, all of a sudden I thought, whoa, what is this? What is happening? I wouldn't normally think a thought like that. And I gave the cigarette away, and then I realized for the first time God was changing me. God was changing me from the inside out. And I got so excited about the journey of Christianity and recognizing this was just the beginning of what was to come. And so God is committing to changing us. As I said, the journey of the Christian life is to know Jesus more and to be changed into his likeness. Amen? To be like Christ. <clears throat> so, four different aspects to this change. First, it's an instant change. It is an instant change. And we sometimes refer to this as positional sanctification. God changes us in a moment and time. John 3.3 3 says, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's a moment in time when you come to life in Christ and you are forever changed. Forever changed. And I, I refer to this as positional because our position before God changes. We were enemies of God, the Bible says. We were separated from God, the Bible says. But in a moment in time, we become children of God. We become alive in Christ. We are altogether new. And that happens instantly, and it does not change. So if that's your position today, if you know Christ, if you are new in him, that is permanent you understand it doesn't you don't grow in that you don't decrease in that and I praise God for that that my position in Christ is fixed it's set because of what God has done through Christ in my life and that will not change I am new I am born again I am alive in Christ and I am a child of God is that true for you are you born again have you been made new are you alive do you stand with God's favor? Do you stand in God's love? Is that your position? If it's not, the prayer, the cry of my heart is that today you would trust Christ, that you would look to him, that you would cry out, that you would turn from your sin and you would call upon the name of the Lord to save you and he will do that and you will be born again, literally born from above and your position will change. Your address, as it were, will change. Your citizenship will change. You will be a citizen of heaven. You will belong to a new kingdom. And that happens instantaneously when you put your trust in Christ. There's an inner change that has to happen, too. There's an inner change. And this is a matter of the heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's what God has said he would do for us. 
And then in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he says this in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean, uh, cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, uh, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. And so, look, there has to be an interchange, folks. The heart must change. We have to beware mere externals, right? If we're only focused on how we look outwardly, and you don't know Christ, you know what that is? It's like rearranging the furniture in a burning house. That's what it amounts to. We have to be changed from the inside out. God has to give us a brand new heart. And if that's your approach towards other unbelievers as you're trying to witness to them, it's all about externals. It's all about outward behavior and appearances. That's the best way to keep them away from God because that's what I used to think. You know, I have to get my life right, then I can come to God. Guess what? It does not work that way. God gets a hold of you and changes you from the inside out. It's a heart change. God must reorient our hearts because the Bible says that our hearts loved sin. Our hearts loved that which was against God. And who can know the heart? Who can change the heart? Nobody but God. And so then God reorients our hearts so that we desire him and the things of him and that what he loves, we love. And his priorities become our priorities. And that happens when the heart changes. God renews the mind. He radically and pervasively changes us, transforms us. Romans 12, 2, we know this verse. It says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Having the mind renewed. God changes our minds. God transforms us. This word here for transformation, it's the same word uh, from which we would get metamorphosis. And we see this happen when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, right? Totally transformed. That's what God is doing in us, Christian. He is transforming us from the inside out. Praise God for that. Don't you desire that? I need that. We all need that. And that's what God is up to. Well, there's an outer change that must happen. As I said, we have to beware mere externals. First and foremost, we need an instant change. We need a heart change. But believe me when I tell you, we should be changing outwardly. We should be changing outwardly. We should be looking less like our old self and more like Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 22 says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And so we have to put off the old man and put on the new. I love these verses. Look, if the heart changes so will the actions. If the heart changes, so will the way that we live. <clears throat> There's an exchange <clears throat> excuse me, that has to happen 
It has to be something better. Something better. See, for a long time, I thought Christianity was just stop doing all those things that you used to do, right? I think that's what people think Christianity is so often. What we fail to realize is that it's an exchange for something so much greater. We don't just stop doing what we were doing. It's kind of like an alcoholic. They don't just stop drinking. If they just stop drinking, then they're an alcoholic fighting to the death to just stop drinking. And that oftentimes turns a person, uh, you know, bitter, angry. Uh, They need to be changed. They need to be healed. They need to be transformed. And that comes when you exchange that old life for something new, something better, something greater. When it comes to taking Christ unto yourself and being born of him. And so we are to put off the old and put on the new. As I said, it's not enough to just stop doing what we were doing. In fact, just a few verses later in this same text in Ephesians, Paul says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather work with his hands that he might have something good to give. And so that's it right there, folks. It's not enough to just stop doing what we used to do. You don't steal anymore. Hey, that's great. How about now work hard, work sacrificially so that you can give to people who actually have needs. That's the total transformation. That's the total exchange. Well, there's an ongoing change. So it's an instant change, a change of the heart. It's an outer change, and it's an ongoing change. This is what we would call progressive sanctification. And that's the difference. I talked about the fact that positionally we are new in Christ, and that doesn't change. But we are also growing outwardly progressively. We are looking more and more like Christ as we go. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the Spirit of the Lord is transforming us. We are new. We have changed. We are changing. We never stop growing, no matter the age or stage that you are in. You should never stop growing. I don't think any of us here have fooled ourselves into thinking that we have arrived. Have we? Have you arrived? But I think that sometimes we can, we can get relaxed and we can forget that, hey, we're supposed to be growing. We have a long way to go. You know, I remember years ago I was uh, visiting this church and the pastor that was teaching he was just a really, really godly pastor. He had such a reputation, and his father before him was a pastor at this really well-known church there in town, and he had a very godly reputation. So this pastor was talking about how his dad, when he was in the kind of the end of his life, he was over at his house, and he was helping him up the stairs. He was just very frail, very fragile, and so as he's kind of helping his dad up the stairs, his dad kind of stopped part way. And looked at his son and said, you know, I just thought I'd be so much farther along by this point in my life. And that really shocked me. I just thought, my goodness, if if a guy like that at that age of his life could say that, you know, where, where does that put me? I mean, folks, we all have a long way to go and we never stop growing. We never stop going. But that is our objective is to grow and to keep moving forward. Ongoing change. 
You ever heard of the law of diminishing returns? Uh, I know that this is uh, an economic principle, and I don't know much about that, but I also heard it used as it pertains to weightlifting. When you first start lifting weights, man, you, get, you jump up in weight regularly in the beginning. Uh, you can make huge jumps in weight, but the stronger you get, and once you get to where you're lifting, you know, two, three, four hundred pounds, guys get thrilled when they can go up one pound or two pounds, but that's really what it becomes. They're still growing, they're still getting better, but it becomes less and less evident. And so for, for Christians who have been walking with the Lord for quite a while, you know, you, you may have overcome major sins in your life. You may not struggle with some of the same things that you struggled with before, but you are still growing. God is committed to growing you. You may not even know it or see it like you once did, but just know that you are still to be pushing in, seeking the Lord, that you would be growing in Him at no matter the age or stage. We must trust God with the timing of our growth. I think sometimes we get so frustrated with where we're at in life and we just cannot seem to get over this particular hump. And sometimes I've been in that place and I've just had to step back and say, God has me right where he would have me to be. You know, I'm trying to the best of my ability and God is committed to changing me. Uh, but sometimes you just have to fall back on God knows. God is working and God is working according to his own timing and he is committed to growing us. But sometimes you have to just rest in that. You have to look at the overall history of your growth. I had a professor one time, he was giving um, an illustration as it pertained to the stock market, and this is definitely not my lane, um, but I will do my best to uh, reiterate what he said. He talked about as, as, it, you know, as much as it pertains to uh, investing in the stock market, you have some confidence that the market is going to grow because of what we have seen over past decades and generations. But sometimes there are crashes that happen, and we know this. And so it's climbing, and then there's a crash, and then there's a recovery, and it continues to climb. And that's kind of what it's like for the Christian life. And if you were to zero in on that crash that takes place in the stock market, you would think, oh, man, there's no growth here. This is, this is a tragedy. That's devastating. But if you were to step back and look at the big picture, you would realize that there has been this gradual decline. And though there may be these crashes, it continues to grow. And it's like that in the Christian life. Sometimes we look at struggles, failures, falls, and we're tempted to think, man, I'm not growing at all. How, what's going on here? But if you were to step back and look at your life a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, you realize God's really been changing you. God's really been growing you. So I want to encourage you with that. Don't, don't get caught up in the moment, in the day. Realize it's a long process. It's a marathon, and God is growing us over the long haul. And so you want to look back. You know, I, I'm not the guy that I wish I was, but I'm not the guy that I used to be, and I praise God for that. And God is going to continue to change me. All right. So God is committed to growing us. It's an instant change, an inner change, an outer change, and an ongoing change. Next, point two, God gives us all that we need for change. Praise God for that. God gives us all that we need for change. First off, he gives us the Son of God. He gives us Jesus. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. His divine power is working in and through us. That is Jesus. God doesn't expect us to change and then leave us to ourselves to make it happen. Praise God for that. God's power is working through us in union with Christ. As we are united to him. When we say that we are born again, that means that we have been spiritually made alive. And that is because Christ is dwelling within us. Christ dwells in the heart. Christ changes us from the inside out. And therein lies the power. Jesus told us this in John 15. He said that apart from me, you can't do anything. You must abide in the vine. You are the branch. I am the vine. Anyone who abides in me will bear much fruit. And we all know this to be true. And look, let me just say something, guys. All of this, we probably know much of this. In many ways, this is back to the basics kind of stuff, right? But my question to you is, are we doing the basics? Sometimes we look at certain things and think, oh, that's for beginners. That's simple. That's elementary. But it's like, are we doing the elementary things? Sometimes, guys, if we were just doing the basics, I think we'd be so much farther along than we actually are. And so God gives us his son. He gives us Jesus. And Jesus has said, apart from him, we can't do anything. We can't grow. We can't change. God has given us his spirit, the spirit of God. So the son of God is, uh, is, is one way in which God causes us to change. But he has given us his spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Well, first, just a few verses earlier, Paul was talking about the works of the flesh, who we are outside of God, apart from Christ, the sin that, that, uh, that mastered over us. But then he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, so there's a contrast between the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and it, with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. So for, apart from the Spirit of God, we will produce works of the flesh. But a Spirit-filled Christian will be a fruitful Christian. You will be a changing Christian, a growing Christian. How often do you cry out to be filled with God's Spirit? Because that's what we need, brothers and sisters. The Bible says to be filled with the Spirit, literally be being filled. And we recognize that daily we have to cry out, Holy Spirit, please fill my heart, fill my life, baptize me afresh, come upon me, upon my family, upon our home, upon our church. Would you blow through this place and affect change for God's glory? Would you cause me to be marked by these things? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the kinds of things that we need. Those are the kinds of things that God is committed to bring about in our lives. And God gives us new life in Christ, and he gives us power by the Holy Spirit to change in these ways. And then he says, if you live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. And so this is very simple. There's not something spooky uh, or weird about this. To walk in the Spirit means to do what the Spirit tells you to do. You know when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. 
You know when God is challenging you, when he is convicting you by his word, when he is encouraging you. Do it. Obey it. Walk in the spirit. Don't do those things that that would quench the spirit. Don't do those things that would grieve the spirit. Do those things that, that builds that fire, that causes the spirit to, to dwell in you mightily and to encourage you along the way. All right, and now, next, God gives us his word. So God gives us all that we need for change. He gives us the son of God, the spirit of God, and the word of God. 1 Peter 2.2. 2. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. God's word nourishes the believer, and we are to desire it. We need God's word if we want to grow and be nourished. As newborn babes, it says, you know, I've, I, we have a, a daughter, she's 18 months, and in the morning we'll give her milk and a bottle and uh, she'll just keep drinking as many bottles as you give her. And so this is like an everyday thing. So she'll come up in the morning and start tapping the bottle on the table. And uh, eventually we just can't keep giving her bottles of milk. So we'll fill it up with water. And as soon as she realizes that it's water, she will slam it on the ground and throw herself backwards and just throw a fit. She wants that milk, right? She desires that milk like a baby. And that's how we should be with the word. Give me the word. Give me the word, pastor. Don't give me this watered-down stuff. I'm going to slam it on the ground and throw myself backwards if you don't. You know, I, that's the way that we should see the word of God. I need it. I have to have it. It's the only way that I can grow. It's the only way I can know God better. It's the only way that I can be changed effectively by his spirit. And God uses his word to transform us. And I know this to be true in my own life. You know, a couple years later, after I had had that experience uh, with the cigarette, I was talking to a family member, um, and, uh, you know, they were an unbeliever, and we're talking about just issues of life, and they were explaining to me a situation they had gotten into and uh, kind of how they were going to handle this situation. And I just thought to myself, why would you do that? Why would you even think that? And then it occurred to me, that's exactly what I would have done. I would have gotten myself in that situation, and I would have handled it just like that. And I thought, whoa, what has happened? And I realized my mind had been changed. And it was the Word of God that had done that. It had changed my thinking. And I realized then that truly God's Word was cleansing me and changing me. It's, you know, we need to hear the Word. We need to read the Word. We need to memorize the word. You know, I just started yesterday. I'm, I'm working on, um, I think it's Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8. Forgive me if, uh, if I got that wrong, and it's some verse about crushing my, the enemy's teeth out of their head or something. But it's, uh, I think that's the right address. And so, you know, I've gotten away from that for a while. But, you know, truly memorizing God's word is, is so good for us. And I would encourage us all to be committed to Hearing God's word, reading God's word, memorizing God's word, hearing God's word preached and taught, sharing God's word with each other. It just has to be a vital part of what we do, of what we take in. But we must do it. It's not enough to just hear it. If you really want to change, you have to obey it. And Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11 says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so how can a young man or a young woman cleanse their way, change their way? 
by taking heed to God's word. We have to hide it in our hearts and we have to heed it. We have to obey it. We have to live it. All right, point three, principles for godly change. Principles for godly change. Now I could, I could name so many more than even what I have here. And so this is definitely not an exhaustive list, but um, these, are, these are some major ones. And I trust that we will all be helped greatly by these. And so we realize that God is committed to changing the Christian. It's an instant change, an inner change, an outer change, an ongoing change. We recognize that God has given us all that we need for change. He's given his son. He's given the spirit. He's given his word. Now we're going to see the principles for godly change. First, and I would say that I've learned this one the hard way. And so this is very near and dear to me. You have to make God the treasure of your life. God has to be the treasure of your heart. And in the, the world that we live in, the place that we live, it's so hard not to make so many other things the treasure of our hearts. I've heard it said that the heart is an idol-making factory, and that is just the truth of it. But God must be the treasure. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart is going to be where your treasure is. If God is the treasure of your life, then he will have your heart. Psalm 73, verses 25 through 26 says, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is none on the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. To say that there is nothing that I desire beside you is to say there's nothing that I could hold up next to God and say that it, it in any way compares. There's nothing that could rival God's worth. There's nothing that I desire beside him or more than him. God is my treasure, and he is my portion. He is my inheritance. Psalm 63, 3 uh, says, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. I love that. Your loving kindness is better than life. You know, we talk about love in the New Testament, the word agape, that, that, that you know, the, the extreme love of God, the superior love of God, the sacrificial love of God. Well, it has an Old Testament equivalent, and the word here is loving kindness. It's the hased of God in Hebrew. And so um, it's a special love that only God has, that only God can give, and God pours that out on us. And through the Old Testament, you see this so frequently, the loving kindness of God. And the writer here said, your love is better than life. God's love, listen to me, God's love is better than the air we breathe. It's better than the, the food that we need and the water that we need and the relationships that we need. And whatever else that we think we need, God's love is better than that. Whatever you might have in your life and you say, now this is the life. God's love is better than that. God's loving kindness is better than life and we need it. God must be the treasure of our hearts. If we really want to be growing, if we really want to be changing, if we really want to be like Christ, God must be the treasure. And I, as I said, I went through this, my own personal journey. I got really distracted, uh, and I, I came to realize through a series of, of tragedies even that God had lost the rightful place in my life and my heart, and I began to love lesser things and to pursue lesser things, and it's like chasing the wind. You can never get a hold of it, and I realized 
God should have had that place in my life all along. And I had to return back to him. And you know what? It's still a fight because God has blessed my life. It's still a fight for me to keep God in the rightful place. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, that is true for all of us. But God has to be your portion, your treasure. His love to you has to be better than life. All right, number two, you have to purpose in your heart and your mind that you are going to be godly. You have to commit to that. You have to take that deadly seriously. Daniel did. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He and his brothers had been taken out of out of Israel into captivity into Babylon, and they were given all of the finest things, all of the delicacies of the king. But Daniel realized that that would defile him, and so he purposed in his heart that he would not do that. He would not allow himself to be defiled. Genesis chapter 39, the story of Joseph. You remember, he had been sold into slavery by his brothers, and he was serving in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him but he said this there's no one greater in this house than I nor has my master kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife how then I how then could I do such a great wickedness and sin against God Joseph knew better than that he said I'm not that guy I've been entrusted with much and how could I sin against God like that God was his priority. God was more important to him than that sin. Job 31, I love this, verse 1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? As it came to um, the issue of, of sexual temptation, Job said, look, I made a covenant with my eyes. I have made an agreement with myself that I would not do that. I would not look upon a young woman like that. You've got a purpose in your heart that God is your treasure and that you are going to live a godly life and that you are not going to allow yourself to be defiled like that or to sin against God. Amen? Amen. Number three, we've got to trust the ordinary means of grace. Maybe you've never heard that phrase before, the ordinary means of grace. Simply this, the word of God, prayer, and fellowship. This is what God has given to the church. This is what God has given to Christians prayer the word and one another and if we will give ourselves to those things simply god will change us obviously i've talked about the word of god and and how that works but prayer folks we have to be crying out to god in humble dependence we have to be going to him in prayer change me god help me strengthen me forgive me wash me and we need to be praying for each other and being in fellowship God gives us one another, I talked about this last week, to help us change and to grow, to set a standard, to encourage one another, to exhort, rebuke one another if necessary. J.C. Ryle said this, speaking of the, the ordinary means of grace, he said, when he spoke of their importance, I lay it down as a simple matter of fact that no one who is careless about such things must ever expect to make much progress in sanctification. I can find no record of any eminent saint who ever neglected them. Ryle describes them as appointed channels through which the Holy Spirit conveys fresh supplies of grace to the soul and strengthens the work which he has begun in the inward man. 
So J.C. Ryle understood anyone who neglects these things, they're not going to grow. We need the Word of God, prayer, and fellowship. Number four, we got to exercise godliness. You got to work at it, you got to make an effort. You know, you're good at what you work at, right? I think some of us are like special force stealth centers. I mean, we are experts. We, we are experienced. We are highly trained. We need to be like that when it comes to the things of God. You know, the, the kind of effort that we put into our sin, some of the stories that I, I have heard, some of the things that I, I have gone through myself, if I spent just a fraction of that as it, as it uh, relates to the things of God, I can't even imagine what God would have done in my life or would do in my life. So we have to train ourselves to godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7-8 says, But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. Exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Brothers, sisters, we got to train in godliness. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as much as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You got to work it out, folks. You got to exercise. It's painful sometimes, and it takes all the effort that you got. You got to strain and toil. But the way that you would train to get fit, you got to train in godliness like that. Amen? All right. Guard against worldliness. We've got to guard against worldliness. <clears throat> the Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. The Bible has a lot to say about worldliness. And so 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. I'll talk about what that means in a moment, the world. James 4.4 4 says it in, in much, um, I almost want to say harsher language here. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, if you love the world, if your heart is in the world, if your desires are for the things of the world, James says that that is a spiritual adulterer or an adulteress and an enemy of God. Tim Challies, he's a pastor and a, a writer, and he speaks to a lot of, a lot of modern issues uh, in our church and in the world today. Um, <clears throat> I have kind of a couple lengthy quotes from him, but I just want to read this to you. Tim Challies says, regarding the world, the world is not a place, but a system. It's a way of thinking and living that rejects God's rule. It is enthusiasm for the temporal and apathy for the eternal. It is living as if the world is all there is. To love the world is to value what unbelievers value, to foster ungodly desires and attitudes, to indulge in what is delightful to those who refuse to delight in God. Just let that soak in. There's more. Christians who mean to grow in godliness must be vigilant to guard against worldliness. For worldliness is a wily foe and a constant tempter. Few who 
professed Christ set out to be worldly. We don't set out to be worldly. We don't wake up one day and say, I want to be like the world today. No, we wake up and think, man, I want to be like Christ. Yet, he continues, multitudes bear the world's imprint. Just as some jump off the dock into a cold lake while others creep down the ladder so their bodies can adjust, some who profess faith plunge into worldliness rapidly while others become worldly through a long and slow immersion. Some make a close study of the world in its ways, then deliberately imitate what they observe. Brothers and sisters, we're not of this world. We've been called out of this world, called out of the darkness and into God's glorious light. We're to be different, look different, think different, talk different, act different. And we have to guard our hearts against the pull back into the world because it is constantly pulling on us, is it not? And our flesh really doesn't help, does it? Next, we have to control our thought life. Control our thought life. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We don't use this language, gird up. But in this day and age, people would wear um, a robe. They would have a belt tied around their, their waist. And it was very cumbersome. It was hard to move. It was hard to fight, hard to run. And so you would actually have to hike up your robe and sometimes tuck it into your belt so that you would have agility and the ability to move and to fight, to run, to jump. Well, Peter says it's like that in the mind. We tend to be lazy, distracted, concerned about other things, stupid things even. And he says you got to gird up your mind. You have to be sober. That is to be watchful, to be vigilant, to be serious. You have to discipline your mind, guard your mind. He says to rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. And so our minds will, will wreck us, will they not? I mean, the kinds of stuff that happens that we worry about, or somebody offended me and now they're living in my head rent-free. You ever had those invisible conversations where you know what the person would say, and so you're dialoguing with them. I'd say this, and they would say that, but then I'd say this. We could do that all day long. And then there's a whole host of other things that we do. The, the mind is a crazy thing, but God has given us his spirit and his word. He's given us the ability to control that. We've got to gird up the mind. You've got to fight. You've got to think. You've got to pray. You've got to be vigilant, sober. All right. Number seven, guard against temptation. Guard against temptation. Matthew 26, 41 says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, we think we got this. We feel good. We're ready. But man, the flesh, you don't got this. We have to guard against temptation and we have to draw close to God. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Have, are you making provision? Are you setting yourself up to fail? Do you have things in your life that you know you cannot do battle with, that you cannot overcome? You've got to cut that out. Matthew 5, 29, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If you've got something in your life, folks, that needs to go, it needs to go. And it's just that serious. You know, Jesus says, yeah, pluck it out. I mean, the language there is like rip out tear it out. And so we have to be like that sometimes. 
Let me read another quote to you from Tim Challies. This was just so good. I, I had to share it with you. It says, at times, temptation will seem to come from nowhere and overwhelm us like a tsunami sweeping over the shore. Anybody relate with that? Temptation ever felt like that for you, like a tsunami sweeping over the shore? But more commonly, temptations follow established patterns and take advantage of known weaknesses. We prepare ourselves to endure and resist temptation through the watchfulness of self-examination, which involves knowing our sinful inclinations and how we have succumbed to temptation in the past. When water comes to the desert, it flows through established stream beds, and even if they have long since run dry. In the same way, temptation trends tends to follow established patterns to take advantage of deep-rooted habits. Man, sometimes you can have sin, just you got that beat. You haven't even struggled with that in years. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and it's like, Lord, I thought that I thought that was gone. Thought that I had defeated that. I had victory. We are in a war, folks. We are in a battle. And you can't let your guard down. You got to fight against temptation. You have to watch for temptation. Guard against temptation. Do not let your guard down. Eight, we got to be influenced by godly people. Be influenced by godly people. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about Timothy to the Philippian church, and he says this, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ, but you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. And then regarding Epaphroditus, the guy that had brought the, the gift to Paul from the Philippian church, he says, receive him in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Hold him in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So we see these godly examples in the Bible. And then Paul says this in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. We have people in our lives that we can imitate. God has given us people that, that walk Christianity out for us and we can note their lives, hold them in esteem, and follow them as a pattern. We should have that. We should all have people in our lives that have been walking with the Lord longer than us, who are farther than us, that we can observe and watch and have mentor us. Do you have that? I mean, seriously, guys, do you have people in your lives that hold you to a higher standard, that you can look to their lives, that you can go to them in time of need? you got to have that. Conversely, number nine, you have to be an example. You got to be an example. Are you an example? First Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and purity. You got to set the example. Timothy was in his 40s right now. It's kind of funny to, to hear Paul say, Let no one look down on your youth. But to the elders of the church, he was just a snot-nosed punk. And now he's been sent in by Paul to set things straight in the church. And these elders ain't having it. But Paul says, you can't be intimidated by that. And you can't let people despise you because you're young. You got to set the example for them. You have to set the example for the believers. And so we have an obligation to look to the example of others. And we have an obligation to set an example for others. Ten, <clears throat> stay zealous for the Lord. You got to fight folks, because our hearts grow cold and our love for the things of this world pull us away. But Revelation 3.16 says, I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. 
I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Strong language. People often say, well, what does that mean exactly? Is it like a spit? Is it like a vomit? Whatever it is ain't good. I can tell you that. And so we don't want that. It's basically like tepid water, water that's been sitting out in the sun all day, and you, you're so thirsty, and you go and you open it and you drink it and you spit it out because it's disgusting, it's hot, it's gross. That's the idea. That's how Jesus feels about a lukewarm Christian. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't have a divided heart, folks. You have to be on fire for the Lord, going after him with all that you got, and you can't serve two masters. You have one master, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. can't be double-minded. You can't be serving two masters. You know, this, this issue of being double-minded, I think Elijah put it really well in the Old Testament. He said, How long are you going to sway between two opinions? If God is God, then serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. But we know that God is the one true God. And so we don't want to waver between two opinions, folks. We have to serve the Lord. We have to serve God. As for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. And it's got to be like that. Okay, lastly, number 11. And we'll close with this. You've got to make the most of every opportunity. You've got to take time seriously. Ephesians 5, verse 15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. You've got to redeem the time. You've got to make the most of every opportunity because it's getting away from us. Time is valuable. And the more that passes us by, the less that we have. You can't get it back. It's kind of like this. I was thinking of an illustration. You go to the bank, you get your paycheck, you got a lot of bills to pay, you're behind. You walk out of the bank, and then a gust of wind b- blows by, and all your money goes blowing out of your hand, and it's scattered, and the wind is blowing it, and there's the, the highway there, cars are just flying by, and you are running after that money with all that you got, and you are trying to get that money because you need it, it's valuable, you can't lose it. You won't get it back. That's kind of how we have to be with time because it's getting away from us. This idea of redeeming the time, that's exactly what it means. It's to, to get a hold of it, to get it back because it's getting away from you. And that's how life is, brothers and sisters. It is going all the time. Time is going faster and faster and faster. And we only have so much time and we don't know how much time that we have, but we gotta be using it for God. We've got to be using it for his glory and for his purposes. A godly person does that, takes time seriously, redeems the time, uses it for God's glory, for the days are evil. So just in a, a recap here, God's intention for the Christian is what? It's to change. It's an inner change. It's an outer change. It is an instant change. It's an ongoing change. God gives us everything that we need for change. The Son of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God. And then godly principles for change. Make God the treasure of your life. Purpose in your heart and your mind to be godly. Trust the ordinary means of grace. 
exercise godliness. Guard against worldliness. Control your thought life. Guard against temptation. Be influenced by godly people. Stay zealous for the Lord and make the most of your time, the most of every opportunity. We are God's people, are we not? God is committed to growing us and changing us, is he not? It's important to us, it's important to this church. And we believe that growing people change at Calvary Napa. So God help us to change. I'll pray and then we'll go ahead and dismiss. Father, we love you. Praise you, God, that we were able to meet together, that we were able to meet outside. Thank you, God, for uh, this truth that is before us. As basic as it is, God, we, gotta be, we have to be busy doing the basics. And so help us, Lord. We all, God, with one heart, we want to change. We want to grow. We want to be less like the old person, and we want to be more like the new person. Lord, we want to look outwardly like who you say we are inwardly. And so, God, would you, by your spirit and your word, help us? Would you, for many of us out here, we're struggling, God. We can't seem to get past this one particular thing. Or maybe we've just gotten so tired or distracted, we haven't thought much about the fact that you're committed to us growing and we're not committed to it. So I pray that you would uh, light a fresh fire in our hearts to take this seriously, that we would want to be like you and that we would want to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior and grow in our obedience and grow in our service to you. Praise you, Father. Thank you for your Son. Thank you that you've given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. We bless your holy name. As your church, God, we worship you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys, and I hope to see you on Wednesday night. We start in our, first, our new series, 1 Samuel. And uh, may God bless your day and the rest of your week. Amen.